Hello, hello, and welcome to Scottish Educators Connect podcast. You are here with me, James. And me, Anita. Hiya. Uh, hello, Anita. How are you? I am so good, James. It's so nice to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you too. It's day two of the Scottish summer holiday, James, and I am just living for the sunshine down Edinburgh way. You finished school on Friday after your first year as head teacher. Woohoo! Tell me one thing you've done <laughs> since Friday for you, James. Oh, well, um, I've had an absolutely marvellous weekend, Anita. Thanks for asking. And um, this weekend, I finally got to celebrate with some of my close friends for their wedding, which has been postponed a couple of times due to COVID. Um, it was meant to be in Greece this summer, but it took place in sunny Dramnadroca instead, which um, <laughs> is the home of the Loch Ness Monster and Nessie. So, yeah, I, I got to spend time with friends over the weekend and basking in the sunshine, which was absolutely lovely, with a tipple or two as well. Lovely. And you, Anita, what have you been doing for yourself in the Edinburgh sunshine? So before the very first lockdown, I used to go every fortnight to get my nails done at the nail mm -hmm. salon. And my then early years officer at the time and I would always send pictures of each other's nails. <laughs> Look at my nails. And I just love to be pampered that way. And since lockdown, I haven't been going to the nail salon, but I've been learning how to do my own nails. And for the very Ooh. first time... I did them over the weekend. Then I went to the hairdresser to get my hair done. And I'm just feeling all summer bougie for going nowhere. <laughs> I love it. I think you're definitely going to need to pop a picture out of your nails when you do some publicity on this podcast. Okay, will do. So it's the 29th of June that we are chatting and our listeners are going to hear this podcast on the very last day of LGBTQ plus Pride. Happy Pride, James. Happy Pride, Anita. Here, here to that. And I'm glad that we're recording this podcast after a year where I know that we've both had opportunities to develop equality and diversity within our own respective schools. Before we talk about that, it's important to acknowledge the journey that we've both been on, both as individuals and as professionals. So tell me, Anita, one memory that you have from adolescence or adulthood which made you feel discriminated against? Oh, so in my most recent years, James, I've had some very positive experiences of being an LGBT person and an LGBT educator. I am out, I'm gay, and I am here to stay. But that has not <laughs> always been the case. So I went to high school in the west of Edinburgh and a few things happened at high school that definitely were homophobic incidences from peers and from family members. But the one that sticks out as being probably the most hurtful was when I was 14. So when I was 14, I had my first ever love. Um, big shout out to Paula. Um, girl. <laughs> um, and she was my best friend for years. But at the time, I was totally madly in love with her. Like, do you remember that very first love where everything is like burning at the heat of the sun? <laughs> literally drive yourself off a cliff and be a second without your girlfriend or your boyfriend. 
<laughs> oh, boom out. That sounds like a Tom and Jerry love right there. <laughs> it was. So we did everything together. And it took us a really long time to actually come out to our families and our friends. In fact, I didn't at that time come out to my family. But we did share our relationship with our friends. Mm-hmm. And their support gave us the confidence to be out and unashamed and to to not have to hide the fact that we were into each other but it was actually to my surprise then and still now the actions of the head teacher in my high school which sent me packing straight back to the closet so he saw us holding hands in the quad of school Mm -hmm. and he approached us very sternly telling us to let go of each other's hands because and I quote we don't do that here and I remember at the time being made to feel ashamed, dirty, but the biggest feeling at the time was that you don't belong in this school if that's who you're going to be. And um, it's something that's always stayed with me, actually. Um, yeah, so for me, that was it. What about you, James? Before I talk about that, I think it's really important to acknowledge that sense of the lack of validation that you were made to feel during that time. Uh And I think that's why, you know, this podcast is as important now as it it is or would have been in any period. And as we feel that things are becoming more progressive in some ways, it's just really important to acknowledge that I saw something trending on Twitter during Pride Month this month around about the really small percentage of countries across the world in which you can be truly accepted in terms of the laws of that country for being LGBTQI+. And I think it's really important that we're having this conversation today um definitely oh sorry sorry. no go on uh no similar similar experience i was going to reflect on um to you in terms of age um and i don't know if that was something that as being a a, you know a similar age around about the sort of early to mid noughties um i'm not sure around about how thinking about the media at that time that real presence of toxic masculinity that was in was in the media in the sort of early to mid noughties and I remember being around about 14 I think I was in Mm. S3 at the time and just being in being in a class with you know a range of other young people and not being really confident or true to who I was. So at that time, um, I was not out as as gay um, and was in a real sense of, I suppose, self-discovery and unaware of what was going to be accepted and, and similar to what we've talked about there, that sort of sense of validation. And I remember it was a time where... Um, Sasha Baron Cohen was all on the TV um, at that time. I think Ali G was who he was playing. And um, I remember thinking at that time, 
um, just some of the just some of the homophobic language that was being used portrayed by that character. Yeah. And anyway, this played out in one of the classes that I was in, and um, another young person had uh, called me a batty boy, and I'd never watched the show before, and. <laughs> Honestly, I still reflect on this to this day because um, I had really fair eyebrows at the time. And I remember thinking, "Has I have I been called that because I've got really fair eyebrows? I wasn't really sure what this was all about. Uh-huh. And I remember one of my friends saying, and obviously my eyebrows now aren't quite as fair. And um, I remember <laughs> one of my friends saying at the time, no, like that's that's a really offensive thing that they've said. They're, they're basically inferring that you're gay. I remember the teacher at the time passing and hearing what had been said and not addressing uh-huh. anything that had been said. It was very much a, right, quiet down, everyone, and let's listen. Mm-hmm. And a fairly young member of staff as well. Um, and what's really interesting is, and having worked with a number of staff over the years looking at LGBTQI plus education and tackling homophobic, biphobic and transphobic bullying, there is a real lack of confidence that still exists in the system but if we recast to our time in primary school and high school just that shadow I suppose of section 28 which Mm -hmm. was in place in the 90s and really still plays out in education establishments in 2021 um so I do really feel it's more positive for young people nowadays. I think it's great to see the work that springs up right across the country. And I've loved working with directly with young people in um, in Highland and across the north of Scotland when I was working as part of the Northern Alliance to share their work in LGBTQI plus education. Um, and particularly, I'm going to give a shout out to the Nairn Academy Equalities Group um, and the wonderful work that they've done that's helped inform policy and actually a poem from one of their young people was um, on the front page of the Scottish Government Review on LGBTQI education, which was which was great a couple of years ago. And I think it's really important that there's the opportunity as um, LGBTQI educators to be able to be visible role models for children and young people, but also to have these testimonials of the distance that's been travelled. So can you tell me, Anita, a bit more around about your LGBTQ plus journey recently? Um, Yeah, I can, definitely. But before I do, I want to jump back to what you were saying in your experience of high school and that, you know, that reference you made to toxic masculinity and the impact that that has on our children and young people, and in particular, our young boys and young men. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to acknowledge that and to highlight that and to, to to see how, you know, the heteronormativity that still is prevailing in our secondary schools across Scotland is still damaging, even though we've come such a long way from when you and I were 14 or 15 years old. Mm -hmm. This assumption that the heteronormative lifestyle or the the, 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 the heteronormative way is is the dominant culture in our society is so damaging. And I think, 
for me being in high school as a an out lesbian that you know toxic masculinity damages us as well women definitely women you know I came out at a time when being a lesbian was viewed by the boys in my school as something a bit sexy a bit quirky definitely quite dirty and you know you were treated in a way that was really sexually disrespectful bordering on sexual harassment and for some of my friends Sex, they, they were sexually assaulted because they were out and gay. Yeah. And so I think it's, you know, identifying all the different ways that heteronormativity and toxic masculinity damages people. And I think it damages our girls and our boys in different ways, but both in quite severe ways. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Anywho, my LGBTQ plus journey recently. Um, so I've always been openly LGBTQ, I would say, since university with my closest friends. So with the people who mattered to me, I've always been open about my sexuality. I think that there are probably people I went to university with who wouldn't know about my gayness because if you weren't my friend or I wasn't close to you, then I didn't really shout about it. Mm-hmm. However, when I started as a primary school teacher, my third year of teaching, I went to a school to teach in a school um, in Falkirk in a little village called Earth. And I had a very good friend there. And she was the first colleague I had that I was just totally open about my sexuality with. And there was never any judgment from her. And so that was the first safe space that I had where I felt like I could be open with my colleagues at work about my sexuality. And I've always been fairly open about being a lesbian with my own class. So for example, when children in the class would ask if I had a husband or a boyfriend, I would never lie to them. I would always say, oh no, I I don't have a boyfriend, but I do have a girlfriend or I do have a wife. And I've never really felt like I couldn't share that with the children I teach because, you know, when I'm teaching a class, when I'm their teacher, I really love them (laughs) and I really trust them. And the relationship we build, I think, is a relationship of of two-way trust as well. And there's always really such value with children when you share parts of your personal life. They want to know. And I think that they deserve to know who you are and what what your life is like outside of school because they give so much of themselves to you. And then in my current role in the nursery, when I started there, we had a family photo basket. So the children who were newly starting with us, we'd ask their parents to send in photos of the children with their family and we'd put them up in the home corner and we'd put them in the basket in the cosy corner and the children would always interact with it and I'd said to our EYO Rebecca oh we need a photo of you and we'd get all the EYPs you know Mrs Hilton brought in a photo of her with her husband and her children and Rebecca brought her picture of of she and um, her boyfriend and her dog and I remember Rebecca saying to me we need one of you and Charlotte, who's my other half, 
And at the time, it really surprised me because it was the first time that anybody had asked me for a family photo or to share widely with the nursery about my personal life. But they asked me in a way that wasn't like being gays, anything interesting or or exotic. It was just normal. Like there's a family photo of Mrs. Hilton and her husband. We should also have one with you and your partner. Um, And so that was the first time that I had maybe been more public with parents and the setting about the fact that I was gay and, you know, my partner's a female. Um, And so then when I was setting up my P1 classroom for this year coming, we did the same thing. We asked for family photos after lockdown so the children could have their space and their families there. And I just brought the same photo of Charlotte and I to primary one. And one of the little girls in my class asked me if that was my mum, which... (laughs) (laughs) Charlotte, I appreciate. Um, and then, when I said, "No, that's uh, that's not my mum. That's that's my wife. That's Charlotte." She was like, "Your wife? Like you love her?" And I was, and I said to this girl, I was like, "Yes, I love her." And she went, "Like like my mummy and daddy love each other." I was like, "Yeah, it's literally the same thing." But her name is Charlotte, and she's a woman. And she was like, "Oh, that's cool." And then she went and took pictures of us, and there was no big deal to it. And so I suppose the family photo was my, it, it was the first time I think that I'd really started to think about the importance of my visibility with the children in my classroom. And so more recently I've become involved as an equalities coordinator at my school and so my responsibility in that role is to support the diversification and the inclusion within the school community and that's you know embedding an anti-racist curriculum it's promoting lgbtq plus rights and it's about tackling um, bullying and bullying behaviors that might be going on And so in doing that, I started, first of all, to look at how can I diversify my classroom? And actually, when you work with primary one and the children are so little, it's so easy to really have them involved in the diversification of your classroom. You know, I bought lots of picture books that were age appropriate that you'd recommended, actually, from the Highland Literacy website that um, showed same-sex couples. It showed transgender children and young people. They show all different types of families. Um, And so I was able to do it in really subtle ways. So I had the storybooks whenever we were... um, learning so you know at the beginning of the year we were learning about space and um the solar system because that's what the children had children interest in and so I I wanted to make sure that when we were doing that that we were seeing you know male astronauts female astronauts black astronauts um and then also gay astronauts as well because I didn't know if you know this but there are a few of them Mm. um and so it just was really important to me that whatever we were doing in primary one, we were exploring in, in a more diverse way. And I suppose my own bias is to promote the LGBTQ journey because that's my lived experience. Yeah. 
But one thing that really stood out for me during the first lockdown was I was helping out at one of the key worker hubs in Edinburgh and it was in June and a young girl, one of the S1 girls had come in and she had the gay pride flag painted on her face. And so I didn't know this girl very well, but I'd remarked when she came in, I said, oh, it's so lovely that you have the pride flag on your face in June. It's, you know, it's really nice to see. And she she said to me, well, I am gay, so it would be hypocritical not to. And I thought, oh, God, I wish that I had that level of courage and bravery. Yeah. When I was 12, you know, and then it was that interaction that really made me think about my responsibility in widening the LGBTQ journey and narrative in our school beyond my classroom and so within my equalities coordinator role I do things like I notify the staff of upcoming um, celebrations or festivals and so you know we had LGBTQ history month LGBTQ plus pride and I offer lesson ideas for the teachers and staff to undertake with their class I've um, presented and undertaken with staff anti-bullying and anti-bullying training and LGBTQ plus bullying and, and talking about, you know, homophobia and transphobia and what that might look like in our classrooms. But actually, that isn't enough. It's not because I'm really comfortable with adults. I'm comfortable in my sexuality with adults and I'm yeah. comfortable in my sexuality with the children in my class. But actually when we really want to be sharing our story and when we want the LGBTQ children and young people in our schools to know that they're not alone, then actually what we need to do is we need to put on our own bravery armour. We need to take off the armour and be more vulnerable is actually what we need to do and we need to be more visible. And so this year... For the very first time, I did an LGBTQ Pride in Primary presentation with the primary six and seven classes in my school. Uh And, you know, I've always felt really safe with adults and sharing my sexuality, but less so with older children. And actually, I was so wrong in having a nervousness or a belief that they wouldn't value or understand because I did my presentation separately to P6 and P7. Uh And what I found was that I was presenting to 30 of the most open-minded, ready-to-listen, accepting children that I think I've ever met. And you know, they listened, they gasped at the bits where it was appropriate to gasp at in terms of LGBTQ history mm-hmm. um, in the UK and, and, and the laws and, and how we've how the laws have changed over time to get to where we are. But most of all, the the thing that I valued the most was that they asked me questions that some people might find intrusive or a bit too personal, or that's not something you should ask your teacher. But I found the questions that they were asking me meant that they were really valuing this experience as me being vulnerable and sharing with them parts of my life that 
I told them I'd never shared with anybody. Mm-hmm. And um, they just were so respectful and kind. And I just think it's really important for all of the children in my school, but especially those who may be LGBTQ+, to know that I am gay and I am proud to be gay. But it's also really important for them to know that my sexuality or my being a lesbian is literally the least interesting thing about me. Yeah. You know, like it's... (laughs) It it shouldn't even be on people's radar in terms of, oh, did you know that she's gay? Uh-huh. You know? So, uh, sorry, I spoke for a really long time there, James. Don't apologise. <laughs> Tell me about your journey. So, I <clears throat> qualified as a teacher in 2010, which I suppose feels quite iconic in the way that it's the same year that the Equality Act was enacted and that's the piece of legislation that I suppose has been the guiding light in my journey as a professional in the more recent years. Um, I remember and I wonder I wonder how much the journey is <clears throat> to do with the change in the changing culture and society and, and the increase in education, the use of social media and the way that things um, are transposed and shared across the world. I also think there's some geographical nuances as well. So it's interesting to see how different parts of the country have committed to LGBTQI education and and tackling homophobic, biphobic and transphobic bullying. I remember as an early phase teacher, so my first couple of years, not feeling confident to share who I was in terms of my sexual identity with the young people that I was teaching at the time and it was really interesting because there were some prominent LGBTQI people in the in the media at the time that when you teach primary seven they're they're often talking around about um what some of these some of these um I suppose role models icons that that are that are in the media at that time and me not feeling quite confident in order to be able to to I suppose share share my experiences at that time and if I reflect on some of the reasons as to why that was I think looking back now it was because there was a culture in which that felt as though as it wasn't accepted and it was due to that sense of heteronormativity that yeah. you that you mentioned earlier. It was a fear that it wouldn't be accepted by the or by the families in the right. in the school that I was working in at that time. And it was very strange because in my in my life out with school, I was very open with who I was and um you know, was confidently able to express myself in that way. 
um, with colleagues that I trusted. Similarly to what you, how you shared that, you know, with colleagues I trusted, they, I was able to talk about who I was and and had no worries with that. But there was something that was holding me back from being able to really embrace who I was as as an as an early phase teacher. And there were some experiences that were quite, I would say, negative early on in my career and some comments that have stuck with me and that I've reflected upon that have, I suppose, guided guided where, where I am now. And it wasn't until I was working as a development officer in the local authority and just about to go into a deputy heads post and at that time I shared a working space with the officer in the local authority who was responsible for equality and diversity and I just remember having some amazing conversations with that person who is now a a dear friend of mine and being able to understand what actually needed or what needs to happen and being able to see from some of the national statistics that were coming out at that time from organisations such as LGBTU Scotland Mm -hmm. and Stonewall about the lived experiences of young people. But also there was a piece of research that was done in Highland by some of our educational psychologists and what that piece of research talked around about was the group of people that were experiencing that toxic, homophobic, bullying and those gendered stereotypes that were leading to to bullying based on gender were young boys and young men who were identifying as straight and they were their gender was being policed and the way that that played out was derogatory terms linked to sexuality so if they didn't comply with the way in which a boy or a man was expected to behave their reception was some of the homophobic slurs that perhaps were being used in order to to police that gender and I remember knowing at that point I suppose that feeling of reflecting on the own injustice that I'd felt as a as a young person and as a young teacher and starting to think I have a responsibility not just as a member of the LGBTQI plus community but actually just as an educator to address this with the young people in the communities I work in. So going into a new school, which was very culturally diverse and going into a leadership position as deputy head was a privileged position in which it was thinking about how can we take what we know and the work that the local authority was doing at that time in trying to bed in equality and diversity policies into schools and really bring this to life for the children, the young people and the and the adults in our community. And we made some really great progress in the time that I was there. 
and that was led by the young people themselves. So those picture books you talked about were selected by the equalities group that we had in the school at that time. The lesson plans were put together by a range of young people and um, staff across Highlands that tried to take different aspects of equality and diversity and, and a number of those focusing on themes from LGBTQI plus education. And that led into some further work at local authorities. So we were doing some work in equality and diversity. We then had a specific working group looking at LGBTQI plus um, education and thinking around about how we could link up and network across a really large geographical area. And that work started to show some of the amazing pieces of practice that were taking place, not just in schools, but also in partner organisations. So we worked with some third sector organisations, some local businesses, and had momentum going in terms of being a visibly supportive working group for various organisations and groups that were supporting young people to look at their approaches to LGBTQI plus education and inclusion. And all of that was being developed at a time where, as someone who uh, lives and works in Inverness, you know, that was our first, we had our first Pride event in the Highlands a couple of years ago. And it was great to be asked by the organisers of the Pride to share some of the work that we were doing in education at the time during the Pride event. And from that, we had taken young people to the Northern Alliance Learning Festival and also then had a session at the Scottish Learning Festival a few years ago where our young people led roundtable conversations with 100 delegates on their work in LGBTQI plus education and inclusion across the Northern Alliance. And that's probably been one of the, I suppose, proudest moments that I've seen as a as an educator, as an LGBTQI plus person, but also as an as an educator who identifies as gay, because it really showed wow, what a difference it is in it was this was 2018 2019 that it was in comparison to what that was like 20 years prior and one of my sort of proudest moments as a on the front line in terms of the work we were doing in lgbtqi plus education was and um, i was teaching a primary six class and like you had um just maybe not had that uh, you know, confidence to be able to to sort of share and talk and, and was unsure of what the reaction would be. Uh-huh. And we'd read the book Untangle Makes Three, which is one of my absolutely favourite <laughs> yeah, picture books gorgeous. from that series. It's amazing. And I've mm-hmm. used it <clears throat> with four-year-olds. Yeah. And I've also had conversations with 14-year-olds about it. It's, it's wonderful. Um, and I love it's based on a It's based on a true story of some penguins in Central Park in New York um, and had in America been on the banned book list Mm -hmm. um, and 
I'm just really pleased that actually a number of organisations recommend it as a book in the UK for, for children and young people. And I remember at the end of the book getting to the end and the primary six class just spontaneously erupted into I just they were just clapping and they were just so happy that the story had ended in the way it had Uh and in that room what I saw at that point with 32 young people was just the overwhelming acceptance that there was that this is just what it is and with that same year group I remember a young person asking the question, um, do you have a husband or a wife? Or a wife or a husband? I can't quite remember the the order. And another young person said, you can't ask that. (laughs) And the, the young person that asked the question's response was, but why can't I ask it? It's a question and... I'm just curious. I just wanted to know. It's mm-hmm. I'm not meaning to be offensive. I just I just want to know. And I think it does link to that part of, especially as a primary teacher, you spend so much time with the the young people in your class, um, and you learn lots about them. And yeah. why is it okay for a heterosexual teacher to talk about? their husband, their wife, their partner, yeah. their family, their children. And why is it why does it feel an almost sense of shame? And I think it's important for us to recognise the sense of shame because we've as Scottish Educators Connect, we've explored Brenny Brown's Dare to Lead, which I know for both of us has been such a phenomenal book that's that steered yeah. the way that we lead. But that sense of shame that has been put on and the armour that you talked about that we wear is there to protect us from a position in which we don't quite feel at times that we fit and we are doing a disservice to the children and young people currently and in the future if we're not able to live our true and our authentic selves. And I have a friend who's a secondary educator and he has a photograph of him and his husband on the desk and talks about his experiences as an LGBTQI educator and talks about his, um, his marriage and he'll talk about his husband openly. Similarly to what a heterosexual teacher may do and I think that that's really important and really empowering and it's lovely to hear that photograph experience that you had that you talked about earlier just around just the normalization of it's just a photo of you and Charlotte and that's and it is what it is and uh, but she's uh, she's definitely not old enough to be your mum no anyway (laughs) Um, I think as well you know you, you spoke there about the, the the team in Highland auditing people's experiences and and you know hearing from people who have been homophobically or biphobically or transphobically bullied and you know in my equalities coordinator role we surveyed our children and young people at 
primary school and asked them if they had ever experienced homophobic, biphobic or transphobic bullying. And a third, mm-hmm. more than a third of the second level children had yeah. said that they had been. And so when mm-hmm. be, they had experienced this kind of bullying and when I did my presentations with with one of the classes this month, I shared that with them and I asked them, what, what do you think? Because they were shocked. They were, they were aghast that over a third had felt that they'd experienced this kind of bullying. And when I asked them what it could be, one of the older boys hit the nail on the head and he said, Oh, it, it, it's probably when we just say you're gay. If mm-hmm. you don't score a goal at football or you don't have, or your shoes are gay or, you know, and it is these these seemingly sometimes harmless phrases that actually can cause the most damage to children and young people who either do or do not identify as LGBTQ plus, and it's it, yeah. it is about tackling that head on, and we as LGBTQ plus people having the bravery to tackle that head on, and yeah. whether you're challenging that with a four year old, or an eleven year old, or even your colleagues, it's about continuing continuing to do that for for the benefit of all of those children and young people who are wearing that armour of shame just now. Yeah, and I think it's, it's really interesting in the bullying behaviours information because in schools that have have undertaken that, what comes back again and again and again is the only, the only reason that kids attribute that comes out higher in some cases than... Um, the sort of perceived bullying for being called gay or lesbian, even if you're not, is I don't know. And so that in itself is a real issue if, if young people are are being, they're experiencing bullying behaviours and, and they don't know why. But for that one to be the second highest shows, and with the percentages you've talked about in your school, just shows the need for us to feel confident enough to tackle yeah. homophobic, biphobic, transphobic language. And with that, and there's some really ambitious recommendations that came out of that Scottish Government report, Yeah, with that comes a real need for for training, for resources, for an upskilling of knowledge, skills, understanding, for having conversations that people feel supported, that people feel that they don't have the fear to... Yeah make mistakes in terms of some of the language and terminology that they may use. And there's there's quite a considerable amount of work that needs to be bolted onto the momentum that's currently there in the system. Yeah. So with that in mind, what would you say your wishes or goals are for LGBTQI plus um, education and inclusion moving forward? Um, oh gosh, so many. But okay, so I don't. I don't have social media outside of Twitter. I don't. I don't have Facebook or Instagram, so I don't know what's going on over there. And my experience mm-hmm. of Twitter has been a really positive 
place of encouragement and acceptance. <clears throat> like, look at our friendship, James. Like, what you and I have is completely through the medium of Twitter and podcasting. Yeah. But it, it was through Twitter. And, you know, when I announced that Charlotte and I are pregnant and having a baby, I that post on Twitter had over 600 likes oh, and wow. over 100 comments, mostly from people that I have interacted with or, you know, I think Ed's, like loads of Edinburgh QIOs had liked it. Um, you know, pe- people who maybe know of me, but I don't know personally, but also lots of strangers as well. So it's been a really positive place for me to be an openly lesbian educator. But yeah. actually, there is a very dark side to both social media and society that I have noticed over the past 12 months is creeping in to the LGBTQ plus narrative. And I have seen my transgender friends and allies targeted mm-hmm. online and in the political spheres for who they are and their fight for equality. And um, it really hurts me personally to know that the way that my high school head teacher judged me with disgust and distaste and shame is the way that my transgender or gender non-conforming friends are being viewed publicly. And I think more recently there are so many worrying signs from celebrity figures and politicians who are using their platform to pit transgender and LGBTQ plus rights as anti-feminine and repressive. I find mm-hmm. I find this rhetoric dangerous. I think it's scary. Um, I don't think that it has any place in schools, in society or in the Twitter sphere. And I think for me moving forward, it's using both my Twitter platform and my role as an LGBTQ plus educator to continue to work together for the advancement and promotion of all of our rights. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see it a lot on Twitter. Um, now there's this hashtag, you know, there's no LGBTQ without the T. And for me, it is so important that, just as we gay people needed our heterosexual allies to support us so that we could be seen and heard, our transgender or gender non-conforming friends, they need us to be loud to support them to be heard and seen because mm-hmm. I think oppression and regression, they happen in really insidious ways. It happens right before your eyes, but it isn't very obvious. And I'm really disappointed to see that some of my childhood heroes in terms of celebrity are using their platform in a way that diminishes the rights and the respect and the the dignity of of my transgender friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I did my presentation this month with Primary 6 and then Primary 7, one of the children at the end of, of the, the presentation had said, what can we do? And I introduced to them this term of, of being an LGBTQ plus ally yeah. and how 
the majority of the children in our classrooms will not identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or any of the other inclusive terms, but they play such an important role in making sure that we continue to be seen and heard and valued. And being an ally is the an open, an out, a supportive ally is probably the most valuable way that an 11-year-old can contribute to, to making sure that transgender people, gender non-conforming people, and obviously lesbian, gay and bisexual people continue to be respected and valued. Um, That's my rant, but it does, it really worries me, James. What about you? I would say there's, there's definitely crossovers with what you talked around about there. If I think around about some of the the questions that people have sought advice and guidance on. Um, so having chaired the LGBTI network for the local authority previously, what often came in from educators was the the best way to support trans and non-binary young people and something I often come back to and even I was working with a school a couple of weeks ago that I'd been in touch and this is quite clear in the guidance that the Scottish Government endorsed from LGBTU Scotland but the important thing is to start with a young person around what is going to be needed in order to make them feel shinari. And I think it's just keep coming back to the wellbeing indicators and thinking around about every child and young person should feel shinari. So if there is a barrier in place, we need to work collectively in order to remove that barrier so that they're able to thrive. And sometimes the young person will say there's nothing. And I think what we can sometimes do is we can jump to conclusions about what we think might need to be in place, as opposed to ensuring that our young people have a voice, they're listened to and they're respected. And we work collectively in terms of what we do in order to support them. But also, that sits alongside that is, I suppose, my aspiration is that every school, every early year setting, every further education establishment across the country commits to a truly inclusive environment where they look at equality and diversity training for their staff and for their young people where they have scrutinised the policies and processes that are in place using the data that they know from their own community to inform what needs to be put in place 
in order to make that an LG, LGBTQI plus inclusive environment and realising that there is going to be a whole swathe of biases, both conscious and unconscious, that are going to be challenged or going to need to be challenged. And I think in order for that to be successful, it's going to require a culture in which senior leaders in establishments feel comfortable either themselves to lead this work or feel confident in a range of other people within their team that will be able to lead the developments within their own establishment because there is most definitely still a whole raft of work that that needs to take place. And I think a lot of that comes down to that allyship you've mentioned. It's not helpful the way that the media has created that toxic rhetoric around trans and non-binary people. Um, We see so many issues conflated around about that, um, particularly when there's high-profile sporting events and how that links to things like primary school sports days, etc. And I think where we sometimes forget is we are talking about people yeah. And we're talking about humans. And when we're thinking about the sense of humankind, it's really important that this humankindness is something that's at the forefront. And a wonderful person who I had the pleasure of hearing speak at the Stonewall Conference a few years ago when we collected an award and who has since become a friend, is Claire Birkinshaw. She is somebody that you should look up online if you've not heard of her before and listen to some of the presentations that she's done. She's now a lecturer, but formerly she was a head teacher in a secondary school and was the first head teacher to transition um, male to female in in the UK. And her work on LGBTQI plus education is fabulous. And she is somebody who talks about the lived experiences and the need for us to really look at our practices, our policies and our way that we conduct ourselves day to day. Um, so that's definitely someone that's um, that's worth having a, having a look at if, if folks haven't heard her speak yeah. previously. And I think when, you know, you mention about school leaders having the confidence to support the training of their staff team, I think it's really important that centrally from government and local authorities down to school clusters and head teachers, that that training isn't simply a webinar that you've got to have completed by December. Yeah. And actually yeah. it's the conversation with your colleagues yeah. about what the issues are. Mm-hmm. Why do a third of primary school children feel like they've 
been the target of homophobic or transphobic bullying? Mm-hmm. What is the ethos or the culture within the community that enables that? And what are we as a community going to do to tackle it? But I think a more powerful question for educators to ask themselves is, what am I going to do mm-hmm. to tackle this? What's one action I can take to make things better for the children in my class? And it could be something simple and easy. So instead of getting your class's attention with boys and girls, using yeah. books as a favourite of yours, I've noticed. It's a favourite of mine, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's just having these conscious but small steps when talking about families or learning about families that's something that comes up all the time in early level which books are you using which kinds of families are you portraying and are you portraying all of the different variables the single parents divorced families heteronormative families homosexual families you know trans um families where you know one or both parents are transgender or non-binary it's just about being conscious of of the diversity what am I going to do to make things better for the children in my class and I suppose as a, a message to little James and younger Anita as an educator what am I going to do to challenge homophobia and transphobia mm-hmm. and biphobia because that is our job. Yeah. Well, that's it for another of our Scottish Educators Connect podcasts. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Anita and myself just on this episode, Blethering On. We will be back with another episode of the Scottish Educators podcast after the summer break. And um, in the meantime, for those of you keen to hear more, you can access all of our previous episodes on Spotify, Apple or Google. James, do you know it was about a year ago we released the first one? Yeah, it must have just been just over a year, was it? Oh, yeah. Anyway, we've also got a host of blogs written by Scottish Educators Connect participants. So you can check them out on scottisheducatorsconnect.com. Or follow us on Twitter at Scott Ed Connect. James, this has been lovely. So lovely. Have a good And um, what a great way to finish Pride. I know it. Happy Pride, James. Happy Pride. Bye. Bye.